All right, hey, good evening, everybody. Um, we, after we pray, let's pray. From John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, tonight we have Dr. Matthew Milliner, Wheaton College art professor, also a classmate of mine at Wheaton College, graduated in 98. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We both looked different back then, I think. We've only gotten answer. That's right. We've we've been better with age. but uh, as some of you guys might recognize him, because he did speak to our men's retreat in 2019. Yeah, pre-COVID. Okay, pre-COVID, BC. Um, but uh, also, uh, Dr. Milner is uh, probably more important to me because his children are friends with my children, and they attend this uh, wonderful thing called Riverside. Shameless plug for, for Riverside. It's, uh, it's for homeschool children. It's a lovely thing. Um, how do you describe Riverside? It is um, probably what the Boy Scouts was like when it began, with, but more Christian. Yes, it's wonderful. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, and was it October or September? We went to a Bilbo Baggins birthday party. That was an amazing night. Anyways, so uh, Peter and Polly are, are friends with. Penelope and Daphne, and they love your children. So that's why, you know, if my children love your children, I have to love you. <laughs> I get to. All right. Um, he is going to speak for the next three weeks on Mary for Midwest Lutherans. I think it's up there. Yeah, fantastic. This is something I don't think a lot of us think about, so I'm excited. But I do, I do have to do a shameless plug for him. Um, currently reading a book <laughs> called The Mother of the Lamb. The Story of a Global Icon by Dr. Matthew Milner. I highly recommend it. I have not finished it, but I'm, I'm far enough along to say that it, it is a very interesting and wonderful thing. You should all go out and purchase it. From Fortress Press, okay? Just go ahead. Just, I don't know how much you get royalties, but you, sh- you should get more, probably. That's it's, it. It's, it's pretty measly. I, I can only imagine. Okay, without further ado, Dr. Hey, Milner. Thank you, thank you. Much appreciated, Pastor Nelson. Hey, um, thank you so much. I, so we were just joking that probably not too many competing events have along this topic today. <laughs> and there's, I, I, I wrote a book on G.K. Chesterton and Native Americans, and I said, you know, the, one of the nice things about the convergence of these different interests is there's not a lot of traffic at this intersection. <laughs> and, and you might, you know, how odd is that? But I think because all things hold together in Christ. 
There's an omnivorous appetite for Christian minds that everything matters. Every last thing matters. Everything comes together in Him. And so that's one of the reasons I want to bring this topic to our attention because um, for a while this hasn't mattered for Lutherans. And um, who, by the way, was at the retreat back in 2019? Anybody? Okay, so I see one or two hands. I will have a little recap of some of the things that I covered there that might be of assistance to you. And my whole aim today, and for the next three weeks, is to just drill down deeper into the gospel through the valence of the mother of God. Uh, And this is um, close to Luther's heart. It's close to the scriptures. And I think it should be close to our hearts as well. I like to say to my students who, for whom this topic is, they have some trepidation, I say, you want to imagine you have a significant other. And because they're often dating, because they're in college. And you want to end that relationship real quickly? Take the moment where they introduce you to their parents. And when their parents reach out the hand to shake yours, you slap it away and say, I'm only interested in your daughter. I care nothing about you. Right? The relationship is over. You're done. Why? Because there's this intuitive understanding that knowing your future, possible future in-laws, will enhance your relationship with your possible future wife. And in the same way, knowing about the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus, doesn't have to be in competition with your relationship with Jesus. It might actually enhance it. So that's one of the things I want to mention, but we have a big anniversary this year in our area. I don't know why everyone isn't celebrating it. I think it's kind of important. There are some pockets of this area that are celebrating it. I've been able to visit a lot of these sites. It's the anniversary of what? What big anniversary is this year? 350th anniversary of what? Everyone should know this. Who canoed by this area? Father uh, Pere? Yes, Pere Marquette, Father Marquette. Exactly. 350 years ago, the introduction of Christianity into this land. That's kind of important. Come on, right? This is huge. Why, I mean, and you know what? The Native Americans, they embraced it. They were like, we love this guy. They fought over his body. They loved him so much. Now, do you want to just dispense all that to Catholicism and say, that's yours, I want nothing to do with it? Or do you want to say, well, I care about the history of Christianity in this land. I'm a Christian in this land. I should care about that as well. And so by the time we get to the later part of this series, I hope that you're excited about Father Marquette as a Lutheran, not because you're going to become Catholic, but as a Lutheran. You care about the way the gospel has a 350-year-old history in this area. Doesn't that matter? Doesn't that help in, in the task of evangelization? Come on. There we go. All right. I love this call and response. This is fantastic. Okay. So, so we're going to get there. Um, just get, I'm looking around at this audience here. So we've got two maps. There's people in Illinois. And, and by the way, I, I, I'm, now that I understand the setup, I'll make sure I magnify a lot next time. But I've got some good magnifications. Don't worry. And these are also notes for me as I speak. So, so um, find these images helpful as you go. But we've got a map of the Lutherans on the right. Obviously Minnesota-centered, but there's some good Illinois representation. And we've got the Midwest, and Illinoisans are saying there that, you know, 81% of Illinoisans say, okay, we're Midwestern. So that's, that's a sh- reassuring. And so we put that together, and then men, of course, because we're men. And this, I put this into AI. This is what um, they think you look like. So Midwestern Lutheran men instantly generated by artificial intelligence. So that's, anyway, I guess, we're, I guess we, we kind of fit that, right? Sort of, right? Okay. Anyway, um, and, and so the, the plan for the series um, is, and just the description that you may have seen, that if Martin Luther had a lifelong devotion to the Virgin Mary, shouldn't we? <laughs> this series will explore Mary not as a distraction from Jesus, slap that hand away, I only care about Jesus, no, but as an exemplar of the gospel. See Mary as illustrating the gospel. And then Marquette's journey through our area was an attempt to dedicate this area to the Virgin Mary. Now, once we understand Mary as an illustration of the gospel, 
Then when Marquette, do you know what he called the Mississippi River? The River of the Immaculate Conception. <laughs> when he first saw it, when he spit, spat out the Wisconsin and looked at what we now know as the Mississippi, he got a hot tip from an Illini Indian that, that there was a big river down here. He named it after a doctrine of Mary and a doctrine that Lutherans generally don't agree with. And so what I want to say is, hey, instead of being alienated by that, be able to say, hey, it's kind of cool that, that Mary was connected to this land, but I, I hope you come to this conclusion, see her as an illustration of the gospel. I see her as an illustration of grace. That's how Luther saw her. So my goal at the end of this is for you to feel more tethered to this land and its ancient history, more in love with Jesus, and knowing his mother will help with that. So that's my goal. We've got three weeks. We'll see if we can do it. So this one is Luther Mary Basics. We're just going to ground ourselves in what Luther thought, play by play. What did he think about it? How, how did he understand her? And then we'll maybe, if there's, we'll do some advanced understanding of Luther and Mary next time. And we'll also get by the third week into regional reflection. Sound like a plan? And then we can, we can do audibles. So if, if, you, if you have questions and things, I can totally shift things. Um, so that's how we'll go. So um, the upshot is, I mean, you're going to see a lot of slides. And so interrupt me at any moment. Matt, call me Matt. Like, I, well, well, what do you mean by that? You can do that. I, I, will, be, I will be looking. I'm just going to be reading the room, right? Um, that's what's great about a non-online lecture. I get to hear and see other humans. And the Holy Spirit, I pray, is at work as we asked at work, teaching us truth. Test it with the scriptures. And so the upshot is this. This slide explains everything. Okay, so we will go back to it. Everything I want you to learn should reinforce this. Here it is. All right, wait, got to fix this. Hold on, let me get, let me get Luther, the real Luther in there. There we go. Not, not the show, not the show. Okay, Luther. That's a great show, by the way. Isn't it good? It is good. I, it got a little dark one season. I had to give up. But, I, but it, 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 it's a pretty powerful show. Um, so Luther, I think, is better than Lutherans in regard to the Virgin Mary. Luther is better than Lutherans. That's what I'm trying to get us back to. What Luther thought, not what later, because what later Lutherans think is going to depart from Martin Luther. And so hopefully by the time we're done, there will be an equal sign there, right? We agree with Luther about this particular issue. All right, it was, a, it was a big day on X. That's what we're supposed to call it now. What was that? By Luther, do you mean the Lutheran Confessions? No, I mean um, Martin Luther himself. Okay. And, of course, reflected in the Confessions. But I'm going to say, we want to see what I, th I think personally what he says is superior to what happens to Mary in Lutheran reflection. She basically disappears. She disappears. I went in to do a room scan of your church. And I, was, I have some photos of it, but it's dark. You've got to tell me in the next three weeks and when you're here, where is Mary in the stained glass? I would love for, we need to know that. So, um, so be on the lookout in the next three weeks on Sunday morning. You may know already. Um, where did, I know she's there, and I think I found a spot. But so be on the lookout. She's, she's you know, the, the mother of the church. She's, pardon, she's in there. Yes, we got multiple sightings. Multiple sightings. This is, this is good. All right, so apparitions. <laughs> Come on. Center focus. I love this. I love this. Okay, this is good. Okay, so we're supposed to call it X now, right? The Twitter. It's now, it's now X. Hot day on Twitter. I just can't. This is just fun. Okay, so, so, this, is, um, so this is a guy named Patrick Deneen. He's a, a, a Catholic intellectual at Notre Dame. And this wonderful couple took a picture of themselves in St. Peter's Basilica with Luther shirts on. And so this start, all the Catholics started dunking on this couple and hating on them. How dare you do this? And so he said, there's no, listen to his words, there's no Lutheran church of any significance that would inspire the opposite. Um, that, is, um, that is something as good as St. Peter's. There is an unintentional acknowledgement of their inferiority. My thoughts pity that should inspire our prayers. You pathetic Lutherans. And so I saw this on Twitter. I saw this, and you know, my, this was my reply. Hey, um, while you're praying, Patrick Deneen, why don't you pray for the whole church, including your own? Because that's a Samsung ad slapped onto the Barcelona Cathedral. 
That is real. That is real. A student showed that to me. He said, I was in Barcelona. What's going on? So I'm like, could we please stop with this superiority? Come on. We're all at the mercy of our phones. And we need to be together. So I was like, come on, Patrick. Don't do that to me. And then I was, um, anyway, this is just some, some highlight reels from Twitter just to get the, the crowd riled up this, this evening. And then I, I was bragging about this event. I was so excited. And so I said, I was just celebrating. I'm looking forward to starting a three-part series on, on Mary for Midwestern Lutherans. I didn't say men because then they would come after me. Why aren't women allowed? I didn't feel like doing that fight. I'm glad that we're meeting just with men. Anyway, so I put that out there. And I said, there's so much good on this that's been done. On, and I just... And, and I, I zeroed in on this image from a Lutheran church. You know what it says at the top? It's an image of Mary in a Lutheran church. And it says, Mary is to be honored and not adored. All right? This is a Lutheran church. Honor her, but don't adore her. Only adore the Trinity. Well, guess what? This drew out the trolls. And a Catholic friend of mine says, come on now. I don't know about you, but I adore my mother. Don't you? He's like, I'm a Catholic, I adore the Virgin Mary. And so what I did is I said, Greg, I quoted his own catechism. And what does the catechism of the Catholic Church say? It says, you should never adore the Virgin Mary. You should honor her, but adore the Trinity. And honoring her will help you adore the Trinity. And he got very mad at that. But I'm just like, come on, man, don't do this. We've got a right to think about these things. All right, so the idea, I mean, nobody knows this. This is new research. I mean, maybe you knew it. But did you know that I can find a Lutheran church that has a beautiful image of Mary that says, honor her, but don't adore her? Well, we have given up both, haven't we, for the most part? We neither honor nor adore her. Now, it's good that we don't adore her. That is, we should only adore God, but you get the idea. So just a little, you know, warm up. So let's do a test. Let's see how we do. Okay. So what I've got are some Marian titles. Marian titles. Queen of Heaven is the first. Okay. The second in both Greek, German, and English is one title. Okay. The Greek word is Theotokos, which means Mother of God in German. Mutter Gottes. Right. So Mother of God is another title for Mary. And then the doctrine of the immaculate conception is the idea, and let me be really clear here, we've got to know this if we're going to move forward. The doctrine of the immaculate conception is not that Jesus was born immaculately. Everyone believes that if you're a Christian. He has no sin. It's that she was born immaculately. Okay, so the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, and then finally, the Assumption. The Assumption of the Virgin Mary into Heaven. So here's my question for you. Which ones, where, how did Luther feel about these? Okay, so I'm just polling you. What do you think? What do you think of Queen of Heaven? Thumbs up. We got a thumbs up. Any, anybody else? This is what does Luther himself think. We got a thumbs up. Down. We got a thumbs down. We got a thumbs down. Okay, we're a split group here. We're a split group. I'm not going to force you to vote. We got a middle, middle road there. Not Okay, okay, good. All right, so Queen of Heaven. Here's, okay, we're kind of, all right. It's a true title, but he's worried that it tends towards superstition. True title. You can call her Queen of Heaven, but he's nervous. It's going to start to lead toward superstitious practice toward her. So we're kind of maybe the both sides kind of get that one. Okay, Theotokos. Okay, we got thumbs up all around. Oh, you're a good Lutheran congregation. Absolutely. It's not only true, it's necessary. It's necessary. You've got to believe it because it's about him. It's that he's divine even in her womb. Defined at the Council of Ephesus in 431. Okay, really important. Luther knows that. Immaculate Conception. Where are we on that? What do you think? Okay, we got, we got up. Whoa, we got up. We got down. I think he would say he has no idea. No idea? All right. Okay, he's ambivalent, as in like he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't have the information. Okay. All right. All right, let's do this. Here we go. All right. So, um, interesting. Let me explain. 
He does not believe in the Immaculate Conception as the Catholic Church defines it today, and they define it as she is without sin from the moment of her conception, okay? Luther, however, believes that she did get sinlessness during the gestation in the womb of Anna. And now that's a normal position. Thomas Aquinas holds it, Bernard of Clairvaux holds it, and it's been deemed heretical, unauthorized by the Catholic Church since 1854. Okay? So it's interesting. But he's also with you in the sense, Mike, that of like, you can't define a doctrine around it. He's like, we don't know enough from scriptures. You can't build doctrine on it, which is exactly what the Roman Catholic Church has done. They've built doctrine on it. When did they adopt the Mechanism Conception? 1854. 1950. Crucial dates for the history of our Protestant relations with Roman Catholics. 1854, it's defined by Pius IX in a, in a doc, in ineffabilis Deus. It's about God, ineffable God, this pronouncement. And after that, papal infallibility is declared in a way to weaponize the 1854 declaration. So in 1870, they say papal infallibility has now been defined so that you can undergird the 1854 declaration. So Luther is, is outside of that, but he's also like, I see the, the, the allure of understanding her sinlessness. Later Lutherans will depart from that, but Luther himself, he's like, sure, she's sinless, um, because that's the, the cloth from which God will weave his flesh in the incarnation. Very interesting. Now finally, the assumption. What do we think? Yeah, her body going into heaven. This is, he's, he's loose. This is where he's, he's most, you're, you're absolutely right. So she, he says she's in heaven, just like anyone who dies is in heaven, right? But we don't know exactly how, and so it certainly cannot be required. So there's your basic you know, Luther understanding. And this is a lot, and what's, I'm glad you guys are doing well with this, but a lot of Lutherans, are, especially Protestants, would not be on board. Um, they, they're like, what? Luther thinks all this? And Catholics love pointing that out, and we want to know it. It's like, yeah, Luther actually did have a rather high understanding of Mary. So the Catholics, because Protestants decamped from the Virgin Mary, they kind of, okay, you have her. We don't need her anymore. Um, the Catholics have sort of owned the field, and these are the Catholic doctrines, the traditional Catholic doctrines. So Theotokos, yes, right? We're already on board. Perpetual virginity, very interesting. So you have, she's a virgin before the birth of Jesus. All Christians sign on to that because it's a virgin birth. So one of the fundamentals that the fundamentalists, the tracts they sent around this country with the first one, virgin birth. So it's uncontroversial to believe in that Mary is a virgin before the birth of Jesus. The part that we have a hard time with today, if you're a modern person like me, is during the birth, which is like, how did, how, what? Like, she's virginal during the birth of Jesus. Like, what, a, that seems medically difficult, right? But, but nevertheless, the ancient church believed that. And then after the birth, that every time the siblings of Jesus are referenced, that must be either stepbrothers or something like that. It cannot be... Sibling, where do you think Luther is on this? Absolutely, without doubt. All the way, yes. But uh, a lot of other reformers too, like Calvin and Zwingli, they're all on board with this. Exactly, they're, they're totally, Cal, you're absolutely, Calvin and Zwingli in the same way. And again, Catholics point this out, and I'm like, I know, right? And I know we went too far in abandoning this, but, but this, is, this is the vast inheritance that he wants to hold on to. And we, yes, sir. I just have to kind of just kind of put this into your presentation, sir, because we're talking about honoring Mary. You're going to teach us this, right? Yes, yes. That's so the goal. What's about Lutheran? Because I just became a Lutheran member, and I don't know much about him. Wonderful. I know about that man. So, but I want to understand this about honoring someone. Yes. Mary specifically, because we don't know nothing after her, after Jesus has died, right? After yeah. She said, John, this is your mom now. Yes. Over for her right there. Done. We don't hear nothing about her after that. The scriptures, right? What about Revelation 12? The woman clothed with the sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I hear you. 
So I kind of want to figure it out right here. So (laughs) this is good. So open up to Revelation 12 and you will see, let's go to the Bible. You will see the woman, and I'm just going to point out one quick thing about it. This is, okay, in Revelation 12, what I want to point out, just a simple fact that I think you'll find exciting. When I learned this, I was like, what? This is wonderful. Okay, so we've got the woman clothed with the sun. So this is where she does appear after all those scriptural moments, which I'm assuming knowledge of those scriptural moments. But in Revelation 12, you see the woman and the dragon at the bottom of page 1318 right there. Okay, the woman and the dragon. Now here's, here, okay, now here's the kicker. You ready? Everyone cites Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. That is this image that I just showed you from Luther. We'll get to these. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains. Wait, what happened to in partu virginity? <laughs> Looks like she's having some pain in her. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay. And the agony of giving birth. So this is where it's like if scriptures are guide, maybe there was a little pain there. But why don't the ancient Christians that Luther is informed by, why don't they want to have her have pain in birth? Because of, of the curse. Right? Because the agony of birth is out of the curse, and Jesus is not affected by the curse. So that's why. But nevertheless, it does say that in Revelation 12. So it's a great thing. This high view of Mary that you're going to see very shortly in Lutheran images comes from the Scriptures. Yes, sir? People who hold to the perpetual virginity say that the, uh, this woman is the church, and that her crown is the 12 tribes. Thank you. Double valence of meaning in Revelation 12. I don't believe, because I'm informed by the ancient Christian understanding and by Jesus' reading of the Bible in a single interpretation of these passages. I'm going to be really clear about that. If you tell me that Jonah is just about Jonah, it's just about some guy and a fish, you are ruling out the Christological interpretation. Jesus says, I'm Jonah. And in the same way I look at Revelation 12, it can be both the church and the Virgin Mary, both at the same time. You don't have to choose. That's the beautiful way. Now, you might say, now you're out of control because the Scripture can mean anything. No, Jesus is the grounder of meaning, never if it wrenches away from Christ. But that's the understanding. So really really clever and important point to point out there. And so what are these stars? It's beautiful. But I'm going to show you image after image from Lutheran churches of this woman. Now, here's what I want to point out to you. Get this. <laughs> Chapter editions. Are they in the original inspired text? What comes before Revelation 12? Read the, read the verse there. We got some lightning. And what's right before that? Yeah. And what else? What biblical motif? God's temple in heaven was opened. The Ark of the Covenant! She's the Ark of the Covenant. Why do you think there's angels on both sides of her? Isn't that wonderful? Because God can dwell with us because He was in her womb. Come on, right? It's, it preaches. It preaches. It's so wonderful. Yes, yes. This is how we should feel about it. So anyway, so I love that. So, the, so in the Scriptures, Mary is exalted, and I think Luther was just so well-formed by that that he's not willing to let it go, even though Lutherans, not these Lutherans, but Lutherans have done so. Okay, so we've already seen this. He's, I got like a faded Luther there. What happened to my... Oh yeah, there we go. A little more faded on the assumption. And then, now, this I think would draw his ire today. And I think the reason is that's where the heart of his Mariology, where he worries about Mary is when she is an intercessor that competes with the intercession of Jesus alone. Because he knew the hell of thinking you needed an intercessor because you couldn't go directly to Jesus. Now, good news. The doctrine of co-redemptrix has not been defined by the Catholic Church to the disappointment of many Catholics. (laughs) They want it defined. But it has not yet been defined. And I hope it won't be, because it would be a huge stumbling block. 
Now, you can understand it in a Christological way, but it's going to be massively misunderstood. So, good news. You Google that, you'll see a bunch of Catholics. Please sign my petition. I can't wait for my next conservative pope to come around and give this the thumbs up, and I'm going to get my co-redemptrix. But I think that's where a Lutheran should be concerned. And I am thrilled that this has not happened yet, because it, it, it would cut at the heart of, of, of Luther's understanding of Mary. Okay, this is good. We've got some preliminaries down. We're in a good shape to, to, make, to, to advance very quickly in this regard. So, uh, with that said, where am I getting my sources? I'm going to tell you where I get this information, just so you know. Um, this is from a really interesting scholar, if you want, because again, there's so much stuff on Luther. You've got to have a scholar that can tell you so, uh, exactly where and when he said this, and that's a lot of work. And so I get this from a woman named Beth Kreitzer. She's at Marymount California University. She is sort of the expert on Luther and Mary, so her scholarship is very good. And you can, um, the Oxford Handbook of Mary, brand, relatively new book, um, a lot of this information is out there. So if you want to chase this down, I can PDF this for you. you, can give the, you know. So what does she say? I think this is a fair summary of Luther's life. And, and what I like her, about her as a scholar, she wants to tell you not what I think, but what Luther thought. She's a good historian in that respect, so she's trustworthy. She's yeah, yeah, she tells the truth. And so here's her summary. Although he maintained a warm, if transformed, devotion to Mary, his understanding of her role as the mother of God, and for most of the saints, was dramatically different from the late medieval understanding. You have a huge shift, which through his influence on Lutheran areas had the long-term effect of reducing Mary's importance. So that's her to the Christian life and her visibility to Christians. So that's Kreitzer's claim. That Luther had a warm, if transformed, understanding of Mary. It differs from the Middle Ages. And the long-term effect was loss. But I don't... I'm, I, when I look at some historian saying this happened, I don't think that's prescriptive. It's descriptive. Why does it still have to happen? That's my question. Why can't this church have a vibrant, warm Marian devotion? Because Luther did. So what if... Lutherans in 1600s and 1700s gave up on it. That's, that's the provocation for these three weeks. Okay, so let's talk about that late medieval piety. It's kind of fun. All right, so um, this is interesting. <laughs> and again, uh, next time I'll, I'll zoom in on these so you get a real big sense with this screen. Okay, so this is the legend of Theophilus, his bargain with the devil. And the story is essentially this. In the Middle Ages, there's this guy named Theophilus he wants revenge on somebody, so he makes a deal with the devil. There's he deal, he's dealing with the devil up there. And then he realizes, I blew up my life, and now I'm bound to Satan. And the only one that can get him off the hook, which is happening at the bottom, is the Virgin Mary. And she's like, sorry, buddy, that contract is null and void because I override it. All right, so this is an ancient story. And this is the kind of piety that Luther wants to break away from. But here's the kicker. I think this is where Faust came from. So Goethe, the great German intellect and poet and scientist, in 1831 writes Faust. <laughs> and at the end of this novel slash play, he says the famous words, the eternal feminine draws us upward. Basically, what I think, it's interesting, I mean, it's just kind of an aside, but I think what Faust is saying, this great German intellectual who knew Luther well, are we missing something? <laughs> I see a bunch of men whose lives are shipwrecked. People committed suicide after they read Goethe's Sorrows of Young Werther. They threw themselves out windows. And he's like, something's wrong, kind of like right now with American masculinity. Something's wrong, isn't it? Isn't there? Mm -hmm. And Goethe's like, we got to get back to the feminine. And so isn't that fascinating? So all that to say, that, that, that template doesn't go away. So that's just an aside. But here's, here's the deal. You know the story so well. And all this wonderful stuff that was done for 2017 has given us these glorious websites and publications from where I get a lot of this material to talk about all the details. So what's the story? Okay. Luther is in Erfurt. 
He goes to see his parents. What a nice thing to do. While he, you know, and on the way, July 2nd, 1505, he's coming back. He's six kilometers north of Airfort, and what happens? <laughs> please, please forgive me. A shout out to a horrible, horrible, lecherous band, ACDC. Right. Thunderstruck, right? He is, thunder, he is thunderstruck. I do hate that song. Uh, uh, so he's thunderstruck. Out of the Storm, a famous biography of Luther. There's the church where his parents would have gone to worship and what he would have known, St. Anne's Church. She's the patron saint of minors, and his father's a minor. And so he instinctually calls out, Hilf du Sankt Anna, ich will ein Munk werden. I will become a monk. Help me, St. Anne, right? So he had, and by the way, once I was in Rotenburg, and the, there was a thunderstorm. It was in the summer, this wonderful ra uh, round, one of these walled medieval cities that still exists in Germany. And there was a thunderstorm, and, it, and there was this guy giving like the, the gimmicky medieval night tour, and he started to get worried. He started, he's like, take cover, everyone. So we're like, whoa, he doesn't even want his tip jar. He's that scared. Of, of, and he ran away, and tiles started blinging from the roof. It was a real storm. It was terrifying. And it's like, that's what Luther experiences. You know the story. And so his pious instinct is to go to, not even to Mary, but who's St. Anne? Mary's mom. Jesus' grandmother. <laughs> go to Jesus' grandmother. Don't go right to Jesus, let alone to his mom. What are you, arrogant? Go to his grandmother. That's his, I mean, that, that's pretty bad Christian formation, you might say. And, and I want to give you a sense of this. I'm going to zoom in. So this is the Hereford Mapa Mundi, the map of the world from the year 1300. It survives. It survives. And what I love about these maps is that it's on calfskin, and Jerusalem is at the center. It's really wonderful. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to hyper zoom on it, okay? So we're going to zoom in there. And who's that? Yeah, so you're, you're way, way down here. If you're, you know, if you're in England, you're right here, okay? And then Jerusalem's there. Maybe you made your pilgrimage. You want to connect with Jesus. Don't be so arrogant. You think you can go right up to the big guy? No. Who's that? <sighs> now, uh, we got a problem with pornography in our culture. And so, in one sense, you could say maybe these could be healing images because she's showing her breasts, but they're not for titillation. They are, that is a vocabulary of mercy, of mercy. She's saying, this is a famous classical motif, show breasts to remind you that you once were a baby, you once were a child. And I think that's actually quite beautiful. And so what we've got here is Mary, and you're like way down here, and you go through her, and maybe she can placate this son, maybe. And I think what's, I think, I, it's hard to prove that I think that might be St. Anne next to Mary. So it's like, Luther's like, I'll go to her now that I'm worried that I'm going to lose my life in this thunderstorm. What a misformed, deformed understanding. Okay, so that's the world that Luther grows up in. Okay, now, in the church year, this is the year that you know so well because you go to this church. You've got the presentation of the temple, which sadly enough we only know as Groundhog's Day. What a disaster. Just like a, it's kind of like a bunch of people that only know Halloween and not all saints, right? Um, there are a lot of those. Um, March 25th, the Annunciation, the celebration nine months before Christmas. Beautiful, okay? And then the Assumption is August 15th. The birth of the Virgin Mary was September 8th, and these just kept growing. So now you've got the presentation of Mary in the temple, where she was presumed, it's not in scripture, but she was presumed, it's a wonderful little add-on, um, she was presumably given to the Holy of Holies, she resided in the Holy of Holies when she was a little toddler. And then the Immaculate Conception is celebrated on December 8th. So, so this is Luther's world. Right? It's surrounded by these celebrations of the Virgin Mary. And so think about that. That's, so of course he's appealing to St. Anne. She shows up in a lot of these holidays.
So that's, that's his immediate access point. And I really love this. When you go to places like Cologne, you will see these beautiful images of the, it's called the sweet style, where there's Mary and Jesus, and Jesus is playing with the rosary beads, and it's beautiful, and I think we, we do poorly to mock these images. I think there is something splendid about them. In the eve of the Reformation, these are the kind of gloriously florid images that Luther would have been aware of. Yes, sir? Well, should Lutherans say the rosary? Ah, this is a great question. I will, we're going to analyze his, we'll have time to look what he said about the Magnificat, and he will give you precise instructions. So hold on to that thought in regard to the rosary. Because I think in my read of his understanding of hail, ave, he says if you do it right, if you do it well with theological principle, it can be good. But So we'll get to that. I'm so glad you brought that open. Um, there are Lutheran versions of the rosary, but, um, and it's a great meditation tool. Um, and so we'll get there. That's a great question. Um, let's, let, we'll hold it and, and, and we'll return to it. Um, I'm glad that's on your mind. It's a great idea. It's a powerful tool. Okay, so with that said, um, but is it Lutheran? That's the question. So we've got these beautiful images, all these sweet little angels, and most famously, you all know the outside of it, I'm sure, of the Isenheim altarpiece. This is the inside of it, and then just zooming in, there's the resurrected Jesus on the right, and then zooming in just to the left of the resurrected Jesus, You've got the fall of the angels at the top, and again, just that wonderful playing around, right? Those of you who have raised children uh, or been around little babies, you know there's something holy and wonderful about that. Yes, they're sinful, but God's presence is there at the same time, as we heard in the Collect. He's creating us at every moment. And so, to honor that, to look at, and so this is what he grew up with. I love this one. If you go to Colmar to see the original Isenheim altarpiece, right next to it is this glorious, another florid image. So Luther would have known about all this, and my point is simple. He could not have abandoned it that easily. One more, and I got a little trick up my sleeve here. Okay, so virgin and child in an enclosed garden. Why an enclosed garden? That symbolizes her perpetual virginity, okay? And what we want to do is just mix it up a little bit. Anyone been here? <laughs> you know where it is. This is the tower! The tower experience! 1519, what happens? What's he reading? Romans. Yeah! But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, apart from anything I ever did, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace. That's the lightning bolt that's more important than the storm, right? That's the lightning bolt that matters more. So that tower matters more than this florid little tower decor. I mean, come on, that's where the magic happens. He has that experience with Romans, and it shatters his egoistic attempt to please God. Now everyone says, okay, fine, enough of Mary, get done with all that. But no, I think he's going to understand this gospel realization in a Marian way. How am I going to prove that to you? Here's my goal. That's, that's what I'm going to try to do. All right, we're doing okay. We're, we go, we go till, till 740, correct? We're cruising. All right, so this is where we'll do a little recap. A little recap. All right, so for the two people that remember, forgive me for reminding you of something that happened three years ago. I didn't remember these slides when I looked at them. But what I did when I came and spoke is I talked about Lucas Cronach, and I talked about ways that Lucas Cronach is reflected in all these different beautiful images. And I just, we're just going to skip to it. It's, it's just so good. So here is 
the way that Luther partnered with the swashbuckling artist named Lucas Cronach, and he said, you, I want you to help me illustrate my experience. So I want you to paint what it was like for me to be in that weird place where I was always trying to please God and the hell I was in. And then I want you to contrast it with the gospel. And so what he does, and every down here at the bottom are these simple German verses that you know so well, like Romans 1.17. That's what's at the bottom there. Now you know this motif, I hope. You know it well. Let's just walk through it. This is where you and I love to live, even if we're good Lutherans. Because if we're good Lutherans, we're always sinful. We always want to self-justify. And that is both the law, good as it is. It is a good law. And it is being pointed to by a guy that looks a lot like Luther, (laughs) who is saying the law is good and you are not measuring up to it. And there is... We don't need to be reminded of this. We all know we're going to die. We've all had those scary doctor's visits, perhaps, of like, oh, wow. Yeah, well, that's that. The heat is on. And we have Satan who's constantly whispering into our ear words of disassurance, which is why they have to be countered with the words of assurance that you hear on Sunday. And you got to have it every week, don't you? Because the words of non-assurance come back and are constantly repetitive. So that's the experience. And I like to, when I show this to my students, I just put a little cell phone there. I'm like, isn't that what Instagram's doing to you? You don't measure up, do you? You're not as pretty or as talented or as whatever or as handsome or as body fat percentage that you desire. And that's what's driving our kids insane. Listen, Twenge is the scholar in this area, Jean Twenge. And she wrote a book called iGen. She just updated it in a book called Generations, published this year. You know what she says? She says, there's no other culprit other than digital media and our phones. And she says, the suicide rates are so bad, they're so bad, that I'm going to show you a bunch of charts. And after the charts, she says, you want want these charts to settle in? She says, what if I told you that there were nine jumbo jets with 10 to 24-year-olds aboard, all passengers killed? If that happened, Aviation would shut down. We'd have a national day of mourning. We'd change everything. She says that's happening every year. That's how bad the suicide rates are. And why? Because of digital media more broadly and these phones. It's warping people. So that is a new form of law, and people are in hell. Do they believe in God? Maybe. But it's a God that can't help them at all, who's off in the distance, a deistic, therapeutic God. Now, what's going to change that? There's one thing that can change it. It's not an app that will restrain what Instagram does. It's the gospel. And when the gospel happens, somebody points away from you toward what was done for you, Romans 1, 17. And what happens is this super soaker of blood is projected, do you see the Holy Spirit-fueled bloodstream? Out of Jesus' side. Now, I've always threatened to do this to students, and we're such dignified, such a dignified group, but I kind of want to. I mean, just like, don't, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm a little bit, I just, isn't it kind of embarrassing when you get, you know, some, so, you know, some water sprayed on you? It's like, do you do the water spraying thing in church sometimes? Yeah, I, mean, I, don't, I don't say it's a water spray. Okay, there we go. But it's like, I mean, don't you, I kind of just want to do, but I'm not going to. I'm not, I don't know you well enough yet. Maybe by the third week. We do use the aspergill. Okay. Thank you. I mean, it's just like, you've got to get hit by it. Is that Paul? This is, it's a preacher, but I think it's John the Baptist. So it's, so a person who points away, it might be Paul. That's a great question. But, but you have that, that, that naked person and the nakedness is key. You have to be bare as you hear this message. And then the, the, the jet stream splatters on you. You hear the gospel. Now, when I say splatter, I mean splatter. Here is another version of it, the famous Weimar version. And what have you got? But you, the stream is a little more intense there, <laughs> right? And who's it splattering on? Lucas Chronic, the artist. I need to get splattered. I need to get splattered. It's not what I have done. It's what has been done for me. 
come on, that's the gospel, right? That, that this phone, the phones that are driving people crazy, they're not hearing gospel. They might get it here and there. I'm not saying God can't use phones. He can use radio, he can use television, he can use phones. But we're trapped in a different kind of message. And people need to hear the imputing grace of Christ. Let's go back to our regular image. So, what we've got, Jesus has risen, not a metaphor. <laughs> it really happened. <laughs> he rose and below are death and the devil who have been defeated. That's not mythological language. It is that and more. It is factual. It is a spiritual reality. Those things that torment you, the you're not enoughness, right, has been defeated. It's glorious. And this deputized Lamb of God is just conquering. It's glory. I mean, this is the gospel. And what do you've got? You've got the dry tree here that the world that everybody lives in. And you've got the life-giving tree here. And that double valence, the way Luther describes it, is the law says do this and it's never done. Apply that to every imaginable facet of American life. It's never done, is it? It's never done. <laughs> and grace says believe this and everything's already done. Come on! Wow. That is, it's just, it is, it is the message that constantly forces us to, to let down our guard. So this goes on, and, and it's, that's why we're here, to celebrate that message. I'm not here to say, well, now, let's get rid of the gospel and talk about Mary. No, if Mary doesn't serve that message, she might actually be a distraction worthy of discarding. So this starts to show up everywhere. These are some print books. Everybody wanted a copy of the law gospel design that Cronach came up with. They would even have furniture that would have law gospel on it to remind them of this valence again and again. And there's a really good book um, that would suggest that Catholics generally, even if they're really intelligent, have a hard time understanding the Lutheran grammar of the gospel. And that's because all of us do. It's because all of us do. Because I want to work for it. I want to achieve something. Lord, let me get, come on, I know this whole grace thing, but I want to do something for you and you give me what I deserve. That's what I want. My heart is self-justifying. I don't know about yours, <laughs> right? And this thwarts that. So no wonder Catholics can't understand it because Protestants can't, evangelicals can't understand it either. They're on that treadmill. Let the grace message speak, okay? So that's the idea. So what we, we did last time is we looked at these crazy wild images from the Philippines of people walking up and down this jet stream of imputing righteousness. And we said that's actually might look like crazy Catholic kitsch, but maybe it's residing in that bloodstream of righteousness, just like in your window, right? There we are. So that's what we did last time. And I have, you have to say, like, don't you feel like Ending with that message, be like, all right, we're done. We're ready for prayer. You know, we got 10 minutes. Like, we're, this is it. Like, this is, I mean, come on. That Jesus conquering reminds me of that window when I go up and receive communion. So why would I then add anything in regard to the Virgin Mary? Wouldn't it? But it's not a distraction. Is this one of the windows, Pastor Nelson, where she shows up? Okay, there it is. All right. Is she a distraction? Let me prove it to you. First of all, we know that these images from a Lutheran perspective are authorized. Of course they're authorized. He says, idols, they happen in the human heart. That's where the cure should be applied. And so images, according, against the iconoclasts who want to rip images down, Luther's like, use them. Use them if they can be helpful. Okay. And so Luther is clear about this, and he says, listen, talk about a positive view of Mary. He says, her faith is as miraculous as the incarnation. <laughs> That's how her, she is an exemplar for all of us. Mary's faith, she's the ultimate exemplar of what it means to believe and trust in this righteousness. So that's why we need her. And then you want, you don't want to destroy images, and then you should honor her as she should be honored and learn from her and imitate her as the person closest to Christ. Okay, fine. 
Fair enough, but where is that in the law gospel images? Oh, it's there. <laughs> Look at that. You'll see a little add-on there. Right, I'm zooming into the top. In one of the versions, Lucas Chronic will mix it up. He knows we get visually tired. And so I love this one. You've got, this time, it's so easy to get lost in the law that even Moses is like, stop looking to me. Look to him. Look to Jesus. And this guy, he sees his... Now, the, 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 um, the game has advanced a couple of yards down the field. Now he's dead. <laughs> right? I know I'm going to die. <laughs> right? <laughs> I've looked at the statistics. <laughs> and and he, this is law, and there's the law up there, and there's Adam and Eve, and there's the, the, the brazen serpent, a foreshadowing of the gospel. And two hands now, because this person is so prone to self-righteousness, and his body is inclined in this direction, right? <laughs> but his, uh, he's being like, ah, look to Jesus, not to yourself. Right? Look to Jesus, not to yourself. And we point up here, we have the resurrection, and Jesus, instead of the lamb in this case, is defeating death and the devil. But there is an inclusion of the Virgin Mary because she authenticates his humanity. And this is a quote from a historian, a church historian, who says there might have been a future for a Mariology drawing from Christocentric theology if it was not traumatized by the Reformation. And I want to say to Darmaid McCullough, there was. This is a Mary that's connected to that law gospel understanding. She does not strike me as distracting. She's authenticating his humanity. Anyone worried about becoming a Gnostic, right? Of not believing in the gospel and having this like secret passport to some personal inner experience that is only for the elite. That's called Gnosticism. It's a complicated movement. And if you want to avoid it, believe in Mary because she authenticates his humanity. That's why we believe in her because she reminds us that he's not an apparition like Krishna or like some deity that takes on flesh for a little bit and then goes back up. He really did take on human flesh. And you might say, okay, you've shown me one example. But in the most common one, the printed one, law gospel, right? This is the equivalent of getting it you know, as, to as many people as possible. Well, there she is again, right? And there is the incarnation, Jesus saying, I'm coming to help you, and I've got the cross with me. I'm going to, and so she becomes on the gospel side, the exemplar of someone who looks away from herself and believes in her son. Dante puts it this way. Filia del tuo filio, daughter of thy son. <sighs> what? Mary is the daughter of her son. Isn't that beautiful? Are you going to say, well, that's Dante, it's Catholic, I want nothing to do with it. You say, no, that is true. She looks to the one that she conceived, that, she, that gestated in her womb to save her. That's Luther's understanding. And we'll look at the specific passages as we go in our time together. Okay, so, so there are some obvious examples. Now, I want to show a couple more. We got some time. So we'll just do a couple more good ones. Now, make no mistake, Luther was against certain images of Mary. So this is an image that was in Germany, in Regensburg, known as uh, this, the beautiful virgin of Regensburg. And this is a famous woodcut of this incident. Now, to be honest, considering especially what's going on with this war, when I hear what you're about to hear, I'm glad Luther was against this image. Let me explain. Okay. There was a guy named Balthazar Hubmeier who called on Mary to heal someone who was injured in an anti-Jewish riot that he incited. So it's like, I incited this huge riot, this anti-Semitic riot against the Jews, and this poor guy was trying to kill some Jews, and he hurt his leg. Virgin Mary, would you please heal him? Isn't this an injustice so that he can get healed and go on and hurt some more Jews? Like, ugh. Luther said in regard to this particular image, and 50,000 people visited this new chapel in 1519. 
And Luther looks at this and says, you know what? This might not be the best kind of Mary that inspires your faith. And he said, it should be leveled. And I say, you know what, Luther? I think you're right about that one. Are those people going there to see Mary as an exemplar of faith the way that he described it? No. It's superstitious. He has a right. And so when, when Luther says it should be leveled, this is, if I can get a little um, controversial here, that's where I'm like, yeah, there should be laws banning pornography in this country. I'm totally cool with that. They should be leveled. But, oh, don't, don't restrain our freedom, someone replies. No, they should be leveled, right? It's like That's the Lutheran. There are some images worth destroying. There are some images that should not exist, that should not be there. Now, again, that might be unfair to this, but I look at the origin of this beautiful virgin, and it's really not very good. It's tied up with an anti-Jewish rhetoric. Yeah? In 1520, Luther is thinking firmly as, uh, as a pastor. Yes. He, he's yes. thinking about how, how this is going to matter to his people and all the people that he's responsible for. Totally. He's, he's on, boots on the ground as far as how are people going to be told, have the same tower experience that I had, not if they're going on pilgrimage to this. And so I preach it, exactly. He's trying to be a pastor. This isn't helping them. What helps them is the law gospel understanding. Thank you. And so I think what we'll say as we kind of get to our last couple minutes here is um, there are, he, where he targets the images, I think he's often right. Now you might say, okay, so let's tear all the images down. <laughs> now watch this. This is kind of cool. Um, I will end with this, and this is, this is fascinating. So these... Um, these are, anyone know this church? Oh, it's gorgeous. I will never be, I, you will never catch me um, in any way mocking St. John Cantus. They are, that church is growing like gangbusters. It is a, a, a beacon of hope and faith in the city of Chicago. I am so grateful for this church. And I will take my students there. Um, and sometimes and we will go for their Immaculate Conception service, and then afterwards we will reply by chanting the Magnificat. We're like, we're Protestants, we have an, uh, an honor of Mary too. And we will meet halfway, but, we, you know, and it's like, and so anyway, so they're giving us the tour, and of course they want us to become Catholic, as good Catholics do. So they're giving us the tour, and it's a beautiful church. It got voted like most beautiful church in America. And they're like, now, come see the white stars, glorious altarpiece that we've recreated from Europe. So we go to the back, and there it is. And it's amazing. It is awesome, right? I mean, isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? And, they, and they're showing this to us. And so I'm like, oh, wow, it's amazing. You, you beautiful Catholic churches, and I, I'm so grateful for it. So I'm doing some research on Luther for my class on the Virgin Mary, and I'm reading this book by Bridget Heal, the cult of the virgin, and that doesn't mean cult in the negative sense, just a focal point of devotion of the Virgin Mary in early modern Germany. And she says the following. So this, let me get the name again to you. This altar at St. John Cantius is replicating a beautiful altar by a man named Veit Stoss, who was a carver in Germany. And they brought it here. Now, I'm reading this book, and she says, were there images of the Virgin Mary in Lutheran churches? She says, well, of course there were. Haven't you been to the Lawrence in Germany? And you will see a gorgeous image of the Virgin Mary and Gabriel, the Annunciation, <laughs> that was untouched during the Reformation, and who carved it? Weitstoss, same guy. And I was like, we have what you have. <laughs> I'm so glad you have that beautiful Weitstoss altarpiece, but Lutherans have it too. And what this scholar says is that over and over again, because she exemplified faith, she shows up in Lutheran churches. There she is at the foot of the cross. In a Lutheran church, untouched. Don't you dare touch the mother of God. She is to be honored. And even Revelation 12, she shows up 
again and again in Lutheran contexts as an illustration of this faith. Now that's something to celebrate. And so what I've got for you, what we'll do is we'll kind of unpack this, think about it, move toward prayer. And what we're going to have in the next two weeks, we'll look at a few more of these images. And we'll get so excited, I hope, about how, how she exemplifies faith that when some Jesuit comes over from France into what, we, what they call the upper country, what we call the Midwest, and preaches to Indians and talks about the Virgin Mary, we might be like, that's all right. I can make that my own. Maybe. That's our thought. That's where we're going. So with that said, um, I think that will give us a good place to conclude. I got some more Lutheran Mary images to show you that are really, and I'll make sure those images are really big and they pop on, on these screens next time. Um, and we're, we're doing okay time-wise. Awesome. Um, with that said, let's conclude for the evening. And, uh, and I hope to see you in the next two weeks. But most importantly, I hope to see you in the next two minutes for prayer. So, good stuff.